You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopi. Hey, Rob, how you doing? I'm well, Greg. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Got a, an exciting episode here. We've got a guest, special guest, Emily Cook, lawyer for McDermott, Will & Emery, is joining us today. So we'll have uh, lots of conversation with her about all kinds of 340B topics in a little bit. Yeah, uh, it's a great conversation. I have opportunity to work with Emily quite a few times over the years and I always find her very knowledgeable on 340B. There's a handful of attorneys in the space that really get 340B and she's one of them. So excited to have her have her on the podcast today and really picking her brain and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, she has lots of really interesting perspective into contract pharmacy restrictions and you know alternate uh, delivery model strategies to mitigate the impact. We'll talk about patient definition, you know, what's going on with the CMS OPPS uh, remedy payments that are due later this year, 340B impact from the Inflation Reduction Act and some other kind of miscellaneous topics. So uh, definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, but first, let's kind of catch up on some things that uh, maybe have been developing in the 340B space since we last talked, Rob. First is drug shortage litigation. I know we covered this in our last episode, but you know, we were a little unclear on some of the provisions and definitions with regard to what drugs might be exempted from 340B pricing due to this uh, this new proposed law. What, what did we learn after digging into the draft? So if you remember last time we talked about, there's this, um, uh, I guess, statement that said that the, the exemption for 340B for generic drugs would apply to drugs that were that had generic competition basically is what it said, or at least one or two, man more than one manufacturer made it. And then for if it had a serious disease or condition or an indication for a serious disease or condition, our question was, well, what's that? Um, how many drugs does that entail? And and so fortunately it did refer to something, um, some federal um, documentation on that definition on what it means. So I'm gonna read it for everybody. And uh, I wanna read it and see, you know, Greg, if you and of course everyone listening can figure out, okay, still, what does that mean? So here, here we go. Um, serious disease or condition means a disease or condition associated with morbidity that has substantial impact on day-to-day -day functioning. Short-lived and self-limiting morbidity will usually not be sufficient, but the morbidity need not be irreversible provided it, provided it is persistent or recurrent. Whether a disease or condition is serious is a matter of clinical judgment based on its impact and such factors as survival, day-to-day -day functioning, or the likelihood that the disease, if left untreated, will progress from a less severe condition to a more serious one. So, Greg, does, is that clear to you which generic drugs that's going to fit into that bucket? Uh, no, I, I, I feel, feel like it probably could apply to just about any generic drug. <laughs> I mean, especially talking limited to, you know, if it's based on clinical judgment and there's all these variables that can impact your your judgment on how serious a condition is i mean what what's to say there is no condition out there that doesn't meet this definition i don't i don't know how you're going to apply this it and and then of course there's the statement there that left up the, you know clinical judgment you're like okay so this basically became somewhat subjective right. i mean clinical judgment is not always purely objective so i it's that's a tough one um I, so I'm still at, at, at a loss for exactly how many drugs this is going to impact and how big it is. Um, I, I will say that we, you know, fortunately, we do know there is some challenges to this bill already. I believe the American Hospital Association, AHA, um, has urged uh, Congress to drop the language around excluding generic injectables from 340B, likely on some of the grounds that, yeah, trying to figure out what this is and the definition currently provided is not great. Um, and so we know there's some challenges already because remember that that uh, that was open up for comment. I think that comment period's going to close here shortly, but um, or by the time this episode drops, I think it would have closed. But definitely yeah. issues with that drug shortage bill. Yeah, and you know, I think a lot of the uh, you know hospital organizations have challenged some of the other 340B provisions within the uh, the, the draft. You know, there there's a, a provision for the GAO to conduct a study to determine the impact of uh, 340B price drugs on, you know, the, the, the extent of drug shortages. Again, I don't know 
if there's great evidence out there that suggests that 340B community is driving product supply down. Any thoughts on that part of the, the draft? Yeah, it's well, I, I still find it fascinating that you're going to do a study to see if that's a cause, but at the same time implement a solution before you know if it's a cause in the first place. It's that's craziness to me. To me. Um, maybe that makes sense to somebody else. And uh, but but I agree. Like, I, I don't know if we can definitely say that that's the cause just because someone can buy a drug at a lower price means they're going to stockpile it. I think if hospitals need the drug, they're going to buy it. If it's a drug shortage, they're probably going to stockpile more days on hand than usual because they don't want to run out. And people aren't going to go ahead and prospectively buy 340B because the vast majority of, especially injectable drugs in the mixed use setting, those aren't the candidates for prospective 340B purchasing. Those would be your FQHCs, clinic drugs, because they're all 340B, maybe our infusion services that are offsite who have their own pharmacy. Those would be prospective. So you can't even overload on 340B purchasing in the first place just because it has a low cost. It's all going to be based on accumulation because we're talking about mixed use settings. I yeah. almost feel like the 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 people who wrote this draft um, didn't quite understand how 340B works in a hospital. Um, and so I, I think I agree that that probably should be removed because it, it doesn't make sense to come to that conclusion and just start removing them. Because I think what happens is it doesn't help drug shortages. It just, mean ho just means hospitals are paying whack for these drugs. Yeah, right. It's it's not going to address the the problem at hand. You know what? One thing that was in the draft um, is a uh, provision that would require HRSA to establish guidance for transfer of uh, drugs uh, that are subject to shortages amongst 340B covered entities. I think that would be really helpful because that's an area where a lot of hospitals and, and clinics, I think, get get concerned. You know, is what what am I allowed to do in terms of sharing drug? outside of my organization and not subject myself to diversion risk or even GPO prohibition risk if I'm borrowing some drugs. So would be nice to see some, you know, more concrete guidance for 340B providers to, to try to spread the inventory around in the setting of a shortage. Any thoughts on that part? Yeah, only other than I don't think they're asking to come up with something new just to be able to be clear on what's okay. Because HRSA does have yeah. some allowances in a drug shortage situation for you to, you know, uh, you know, buy drug on GPO and it not be a GPO prohibition violation, providing you do A, B, and C. Right? With, since we're not in a PHE anymore, reporting that to HRSA when that occurs, and so I think them being very clear with covered entities what they can and cannot do and and how they and what they can do. Um, I think would be very helpful, but I, I don't think they can change GPO prohibition and things that, that really make it difficult right now. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, we're recording this on August 24th. Uh, I think public comment session ends tomorrow, the 25th. So it'll be interesting to see if any other uh, comments are, are provided. And then I guess, you know, the next steps would be for this to actually be introduced into discussion within the ENC committee, right? Uh, that's my guess. Yeah. Or the subcommittee on health from the ENC, but yeah. That'd be the next steps. And so we'll, we'll see how this one plays out. We'll be tracking it like we do some of the other key bills and we'll let you know what we hear. All right. Since we last talked, another area where we're seeing a little bit of movement, um, state-specific 340B law. We've got some laws out there. Arkansas and Louisiana have laws protecting contract pharmacy provisions. Um, we've got two states, Minnesota and Maine, that have introduced some 340B reporting requirements at the state level. First, let's talk about the uh, contract pharmacy laws or the protections that some states have uh, introduced. A couple of manufacturers have relaxed their policies as a result of these state laws. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating that, you know, as usual, when the federal level fails to resolve issues, we see states taking up the banner and, and doing some things. So love the fact that we, we've seen two states um, pass laws around that, um, you know, as you mentioned. Um, and, and what's interesting is the response from the pharmaceutical manufacturers. So what we do know is, you know, in the case of Louisiana's law, um, they, that both, uh, Tiva and Merck have relaxed their contract pharmacy policy. So that's a, that's a win, right. For, um, covered yeah. entities in Louisiana. What, interesting, at least from the reports we saw, um, for Arkansas, only Merck has done that. It doesn't, it, I, we haven't heard that Tiva's re relaxed their restrictions for Arkansas, but Merck has done for both states. But then on the flip side, then we've also seen that AstraZeneca, um, I think, and also pharma in general, is suing Louisiana's uh, pharmacy law. And so, of course, we're seeing some, um, you know, and, and they're they're basically trying to say that, well, this is a federal issue and the state shouldn't yeah. be uh, creating law around it. Um, but yeah, state, we have manufacturers state, that are in line. Yeah, state law shouldn't preempt the, you know, federal provisions of the 340B law. So, um, you know, it's, it'll be, again, interesting to see how this plays 
plays out. But yeah, good, you know, a, a positive development for those covered entities in, in those states where they've seen a relaxation of those uh, contract pharmacy policies. Yeah. So, so, but interesting to see. And, uh, and of course, just to remind everybody, uh, Doris Matsui does have a bill, I think, uh, 340B Patients Act, um, that she's trying to get, uh, you know, once the session there, the house, um, resumes, hopefully she'll be able to get that out onto the ENC floor as well, um, uh, for, for discussion. So we'll be monitoring that. Still haven't heard any movement on that either. So, um, but definitely a component that we're watching. And then what are your thoughts on some of these state laws that have implemented 340B reporting requirements? So we've got the state of Maine and the state of Minnesota now uh, with some state-specific laws that require covered entities to share some information to, for, in the interest of transparency. Yeah, I, um, I, you know, I, it feels like there's enough movement at a federal level, so I'm surprised that we have states taking up the charge on these. Um, if I understand correctly, Minnesota applies to all covered entities um, about this requirement to to report on 340B savings in a variety of different ways. Um, Maine's bill is specific to um, hospitals only, uh, but uh, but again, with with you know a federal law, a federal bill, both in the House and Senate, that's granted bipartisan, so we don't know if it's actually going to pass, but um, both introduced and being worked on, I'm, I'm surprised that um, the states have gone through. Now, with timing, it sounds like the states start on this sooner than later, and, and in many cases, really following the American Hospital Association's kind of voluntary 340B good stewardship principles. Um, but interesting, it passed. Um, I, I do think um, not not super excited that we're having these bills passed because I think then that that you know as we see more and more states potentially pass these rules, I think it makes it easier for um, those bills to pass at a federal level because I think the representatives and senators of those states are like, okay, well our states have spoken, um, it'd be hard for them to go against a federal federal law that's similar uh, in scope and size. And uh, so you know, I guess you win some, you lose some at, at the state level. But uh, but interesting that we are having some specific. Um, legislation dropped. You know, this is not unlike how we saw the PBM legislation, the anti-discrimination PBM legislation yep. never really get taken up at a federal level. And now we're up to over half the states have legislation passed. So I'm I'm just curious to see how many more states follow suit with either one of these, the, the transparency kind of bills or the uh, contract pharmacy bills. Um, but my guess is because these have passed, it uh, definitely gives the other states um, some thoughts for the next legislative session. And my guess is we're gonna see a bunch of more states try. Uh, and to be fair, other states also have tried during this time. I think we, we've we heard other states have tried either one of these two legislations, they just didn't pass them. They're still in discussions yep. or still in the works. And then another topic, I think Rob, you had shared, you wanted to talk a little bit about was kind of an uptick in manufacturer repayment um, chatter out in the 340B space. Yeah, you know, we, we get these updates. If you're not signed up, you know, HRSA does have updates directly where they'll email you updates on, especially when there's manufacturers who maybe um, uh, had some incorrect 340B pricing and offering payback. And I just want to remind people that, um, you know, when you see those uh, come out, or I think HRSA also does about five manufacturer audits per year. And if they identify that their 340B ceiling price calculations are wrong, then they'll... Um, then they'll have them, you know, they'll put their notice on HRSA's website, on um, OPA's website. And so what I just wanted to remind everybody that um, Apexis does a fantastic job of getting people paid up if you're, you know, with sign up for Apexis to do that. And they work on manufacturers and getting those paybacks. But not every manufacturer goes through Apexis. It's a service that Apexis provides. And so um, some manufacturers decide to just post notice and handle it directly. And so just a reminder to covered entities, as you look through the OPA's website on those manufacturer um um, payback notices that, um, you know, do make sure that either Apexis is doing the payback for you, or if not, do determine if if you have um, some impact with those manufacturers that you might have to reach out directly. And a lot of times those those letters on, on the website will kind of uh, t tell you what you need to do there. But just thought I'd bring that up because it feels like I've seen more and more lately um, where that's yeah. occurred. And um, and if you go to OPA's website, it's actually under a tab called Manufacturer Notices to Covered Entities. Um, and in 2023, we, we already have quite a long list. Like it's it's more than one page worth. And so I just think it's just worth going back and looking at those if and just seeing if you have impact. A lot of times they'll list the NDCs um, and, and what you have to do. Great tip. All right. Let's see what else here. We're kind of right in midstream of the annual hospital recertification period kicked off on August 14th will continue through and end on September 11th. So hospital covered entities, that time of year again, get out the filed, most recently filed cost report, get out your eligibility documentation and complete your annual recertification. 
any um any tips that we've picked up along the way, Robin? That we're we're kind of early in the process right now, not even at the halfway point. Um, I don't know about tips, just just as a reminder, just make sure you're updating those Medicare cost report dates and numbers if you already haven't yeah. done so. That's just critical, right? Those are findings that we continue to see that we can't do much about. If if you've got the wrong dates of your cost report on your um database, then it's going to be a finding. It's an inaccurate O-based database. And it, you know, it, it's not something that's going to require financial payback or anything like that, it, but it still is a corrective action plan. It still is a finding. Um, you know, and, and it's just one of those you can easily correct by just getting it right. Now, the nice part, of course, is even if you miss it, once you're done with recertification, you are allowed to update that field where previously you have to wait for the next year. So you're almost guaranteed to get a finding if you didn't get that right during recertification. Um, but, you know, thought is just make sure that everything makes sense. Everything's up to date, that you've done a review of your most recently filed cost report to all your registrations to make sure that everybody has expenses and charges who's registered as a child site on worksheets A and C and just getting that all done correctly. Yeah, and I, I, again, I haven't really seen very specific instructions out to covered entities from OPA on this, but you're right. The qualification info tab now is subject to change requests in the future. So you have to update it if you're going through re recertification now. But once you're filed, once you file your next cost report between now and next recertification, the expectation is in real time, you'll go in and submit a change request to update all of your cost report information at that time. So if you're on a July to June fiscal year, your cost report is probably going to be filed this November. You're going to need to go into OPA again, even though it's a few months just after recertification, and update your, your MCR data, lest uh, be subject to a potential OPA database finding. Yeah, and also another good time if you haven't done lately, just double check your AONPC listings for both your parent and all child sites if you're a grantee type, all your grantee listings. Um, sometimes we see some are updated and some aren't really easy for HRSA to see that when they look at all of your sites in aggregate. Um, we'll also check your titles and your phone numbers. Make sure those are all yeah. changed. Sometimes, you know, a 340B person or a pharmacy person gets a different title or the CFO or your, your AO gets a different title. Just make sure that's all accurate. Those are also things we've seen um, on Hearst audits. It sometimes can be a, a technical finding. Yeah, check check the phone numbers. I've been on audits where we've actually tested the phone numbers in the conference room with the HRSA auditor, and you want to make sure that those numbers are directed to somebody that can get you in touch with either the PC or the AO, whoever's number you're, you're testing. So, good yeah. tips. All right. Um, let's see. I think that's it in terms of updates. We've got a webinar coming up, Rob. I think you and I are yes. going to do this one with Kat Erickson. Yeah, we, we talked about it previously. I think we were trying to, when we did our, our Medicare cost report uh, podcast, like, you know, in the future, we ought to do something where we show people how to actually do uh, pivot yeah. tables and V lookups and that fun stuff. And, and we're going to do it. So uh, we're going to show you exactly. We're going to pull spreadsheets up. We're going to, we're going to uh, make some generic versions, might base it on some of our clients because we own a couple of different versions of spreadsheets. There's different flavors of trial balances and summary groupings for worksheets A and C. So we're going to give you guys a couple of views of what different trial balances look like. And we're going to show you how we, we get the expenses and revenue and, and Medicare cost report lines and cost centers all in one line. So you can do a really good comparison and create your crosswalks, your Medicare cost report crosswalks for, for your potential HERS audits in the future. So I think that'll be a really good learning um, webinar. Yeah, so that's going to be Tuesday, September 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, if you're following us on social media, whether it's Twitter or LinkedIn, we'll have uh, some social media postings kind of promoting that. And I think in one of our podcast episodes coming up leading up to that webinar, we'll try to get some type of uh, link or something in the show notes for folks to, to find a way to register for that webinar. Yeah. Oh, and um, I, we because I know because we have to send our CVs in, um, this is going to be a CE. That's right. Uh, for pharmacists yeah. and pharmacy technicians. Excellent. All right, good. Well, I think that's it for updates. Uh, again, we've got Emily Cook uh, on the other side of the break. She's going to talk with us about a uh, couple of different hot topics in the 340B space. We're actually breaking this discussion up into two episodes. So this is really going to be part one of two parts of our conversation with Emily. So uh, if you're listening, you'll get part one this time around, and you'll have to come back in two weeks and get our uh, follow-up discussion with Emily. Uh, Rob, it was good catching up with you. We'll uh, see you and Emily on the other side of this break. Fantastic. Thanks, Greg. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendmen Pharmacy. As a pharmacy industry professional, you know 340B program participation includes complex regulatory and audit requirements that must be managed carefully and accurately. 
If HRSA identifies non-compliance issues, costly and corrective actions are often required, and 340B programming eligibility may be at risk. Visit spendman.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how Spendman Pharmacy can help you ensure 340B compliance while driving significant savings. Hey everyone, welcome back. Rob, we've got a special guest with us. You want to introduce our special guest here? Yes. Uh, well, so first, you know, over the course of the last, gosh, decade plus, I've been doing full-time, um, you know, uh, support in the 340B space for covered entities. I've had the opportunity to work with quite a few 340B attorneys, but one of my favorite and, and one of the smartest attorneys I know in the 340B space is Emily Cook. And um, I won't go off through the details of her firm and everything in her background. Um, she's on the call and then she can do that better than I, I can. But I just wanted to say I always she always provides really excellent sound um, kind of, uh, I guess I'll say legal advice for covered entities um, and, and, you know, the best way to approach things. And it always makes sense. I think she's very versed in the 340B details and nuances. And that, that's really important because from the legal side, I, I think a lot of attorneys understand the legal perspectives, but you also have to understand 340B operations and how things actually work. And that's where I think she does a fantastic job. So, so Emily, so excited to have you on the podcast today and just, just being able to just kind of just really just to have these conversations around all these difficult 340B topics that we have. But before we get started, would you mind giving us uh, listeners an introduction to you and your background? Sure. Thank you so much, Rob and Greg. And I'm really excited to be here on the, the podcast today. I am an attorney with McDermott, Will & Emery. I'm based in our Los Angeles office, uh, primarily because I am married uh, to my husband who likes to surf a lot. And we used to live in Washington, DC, but I was informed that the surfing is better here in Los Angeles. So here we are, uh, even though my practice is much more like a DC-based attorney practice. I am the co-chair of McDermott's healthcare regulatory practice area, and my practice is focused on federal healthcare programs, uh, not just 340B, but also Medicare, Medicaid, uh, provider operations, licensure, Medicare, certification. But uh, over the years, my focus on 340B has kept me very busy. And as the 340B program has grown in the past decade or so, it has uh, comprised a larger portion of my practice. And I would say now, depending on the day, it is probably about half of my practice, if not a little bit more for those of you who work in the 340B space regularly, which I anticipate is most of the listeners. Um, you know that the 340B program provides a, a really endless opportunity for uh, engagement and issue spotting and issue solving. And it uh, really allows me to, uh, to keep busy with 340B, particularly in the last 18 months or so. Yeah, and there's there's really been no shortage of things to discuss, lots of developments in the 340B space. Rob, what do you think? Should we jump right into it? Yes, I we know we we pre thought of a quite a few different areas that we've been talking about on the podcast and um and just some really tricky areas that's come about over the last couple of weeks and and we think they'd be great for Emily, for you to be able to kind of weigh in on. And, and I guess we should highlight, this is not legal advice, just, even though Emily is an attorney. Uh, this is not legal advice. This is us just talking 340B. You definitely want to consult an attorney or possibly reach out to Emily's law firm and, and officially hire her for any official advice. Um, Emily, did I get that disclaimer right? I, I wasn't sure if you even asked us to do one. But. Probably right. I think that uh, I think that the powers that be here at McDermott uh, will appreciate that disclaimer. Yes, uh, I, I do not have an attorney-client relationship uh, with with your listeners, other than those that are actually active clients. Uh, so cannot provide legal advice, but can certainly provide some insights and uh, commentary on on the 340B program that may be, may be informative and helpful as folks are making decisions or thinking through their own uh, individual concerns and issues. And we do have a lot of clients in common. So uh, you know, definitely some of our listeners, I know for sure, are clients as well, and which is easy. You can reach out to you know, us on, on the operation side or Emily on, on the legal uh, side as well. So, so excellent. Uh, how's that yeah. sound, Greg? That's good. Uh, yeah, lots of burning topics, lots of things that have been coming up in the 340B space and even in the healthcare space that maybe kind of uh, tangentially inter intersect with 340B covered entities that we get a lot of questions about. So, Emily, we're really interested in your commentary on on a lot of these these issues. Let's let's start with 
contract pharmacy restrictions. So this is an ongoing, you know, the, the manufacturer restrictions implemented uh, impacting contract pharmacy operations, 340B covered entities. We're going on three years now dealing with these uh, variety of um, of manufacturer restrictions, and you know, Rob and I have talked about you know our our thoughts or our opinions on on where the court cases may go, and we know that there are some state level legislation that's kind of interfering with some of the uh, manufacturers' uh, policies. But really, want to talk with you about you know some of the the outside the box operational strategies that covered entities have been looking at, particularly things like alternate delivery models to mitigate the impact of the restrictions. What are you hearing or what do you know of as of the obstacles that covered entities are facing when they're entertaining some of these um, different strategies? Sure. It's been very interesting. And again, you know, particularly over the last, I would say even weeks, uh, but certainly months to see the thought processes and changes that many covered entities are evaluating in connection with their methods for acquiring 340B drugs and getting those 340B drugs to their patients. And in fact, I would equate it in some ways to the changes that we saw in 2010 and 2011 following the issuance of the 2010 contract pharmacy guidance. It really is a fundamental shift in thinking about the 340B program. What we are seeing is that many covered entities are facing either current or expected future challenges in accessing 340B pricing on drugs that are unquestionably intended for dispensing to individuals who are patients of the covered entity. And that, that is a really key point to always keep in mind with the 340B program. And that is that the statute, while quite thin in terms of requirements and defined terms, unquestionably allows for 340B covered entities to acquire drugs uh, for dispensing to their patients at the 340B price. And as manufacturers have uh, begun to impose restrictions on access to that pricing, covered entities have had to be very thoughtful and strategic about how to continue to get 340B pricing on drugs dispensed to their patients. So we are seeing a lot of interest in alternative distribution models, both internal to uh, health systems of which covered entities may be a part, internal to just covered entities themselves, and then also arrangements that involve sending drugs from a covered entity to an external 340B, uh, or I'm sorry, an external contract pharmacy for dispensing. And interestingly, when we work through these models, what we're generally seeing is that because, again, these drugs are, or these arrangements are for the ability to obtain 340B pricing on drugs that are going to patients of the covered entity, there's often very little 340B risk associated with them. And by that, I mean, um, in terms of uh, HRSA enforcement risk or actual potential violation of the 340B statute, these arrangements really don't um, present what appear to be material risks. Uh, however, just focusing on those risks is often um, not going to allow for a covered entity to adequately evaluate whether to proceed with an alternative distribution model. And a lot of the work that we have been doing related to alternative distribution models are really focused on, number one, what do these state laws say, both the state in which the covered entity is located and then to the extent that it involves pharmacies or movement of drugs outside of that state, the laws of the state in which those drugs would be moving. And then second of all, um, what does the participation in the alternative distribution model mean for um, changing the operations of the covered entity? And are those changes to the operations going to um, be changes that will benefit the covered entity outside of just the alternative distribution model, recognizing that the manufacturers um, 
have the ability, um, and, and we have seen them exercise it, to change their rules, change their interpretations, change their um, rules regarding access to 340B pricing at any time, uh, with or without notice, um, and in some cases, uh, change their interpretations or at least apply their interpretations retroactively in the form of uh, recoupments or chargeback denials to the wholesalers. That's a great summary of kind of the the issue at hand. So, you know, the the first question I think we get most commonly from our clients really is how does HRSA, you know, assess these alternate delivery models? And, and I don't think we're aware of any, you know, true, uh, you know, we haven't seen HRSA audit findings. Maybe it's too soon because not so many covered entities are implementing these types of delivery models. But, you know, the, the concerns really aren't around 340B program compliance, but some of these other, you know, state level, issues or other operational considerations, right? It's not it's not a HRSA concern uh, when pondering whether or not to implement one of these alternate delivery models. I think that's right. I mean, again, historically, what we've seen from HRSA in the contract pharmacy space is that so long as the entity that is purchasing the 340B drug is a covered entity that is um, appropriately participating in the 340B program, and the drug is being dispensed to an individual who is a patient of the covered entity, the mechanism through which the covered entity effectuates that dispensing has really not been something that HRSA has focused on at a granular level. In other words, they really rely on the uh, contractual provisions and appropriate pharmacy licensure structures to regulate the uh, dispensing arrangements. So I I would be surprised if we saw HRSA taking action against these models. And again, I think you are absolutely correct that it is is really premature to to determine how that might actually look on audit. And in fact, um, you know, I don't know how many of these models are up and running, but I'm not aware yet of any entity that has an alternative distribution model that has has been audited. Uh, you, You guys might be familiar with them, but I am I am not, and certainly then audit findings would be several months at least into the future. And even if they were to uh, potentially make an audit finding, again, I think so long as the drugs are being uh, purchased by the covered entity and they are dispensed to a patient of the covered entity and there is auditable documentation to show both of those points, that there would be arguments um, to defend any any audit findings that might arise. Yeah, I, I I agree with that, uh, Emily and Greg, because I, I'm thinking about how HRSA actually audits, and, and right, they're going to look at the qualified prescription for these retail prescriptions, and providing they qualify, right, they still have to meet all the regular diversion, but assuming they do, then they may, the only way I think they'd even see it and even, even weigh in on it is if they put it as one of their tracers. So today, on average, what we're seeing lately is almost five tracers per, per HRSA audit on the retail side, three to five, but lately I've been seeing more five. And so out of the five of the 30 samples, they, if they pick one of these alternative delivered model uh, drugs, then I guess, you know, they want to see the accumulation in the TPA and then potentially purchasing. And I guess purchasing is where you could run into some visibility. But I, I agree, even then, if you just showed, well, here's the account we bought it on, and it, and we can show that that, that purchase was decremented, um, just to show that that was the drug that was actually used or, or that the right NDC was accumulated, which is true on the retail side. I, I just don't know what Herschel would call that because it's not a diversion necessarily. Um, so I, I'm, that's where I get stuck is I'm not sure what they do. I do think it's a manufacturer side and, and what they do to these purchasing accounts. Do they allocate? Do they possibly you know, um, not provide access, which would be risky for them to not provide access on an in-house retail account or some other uh, covered entity account? Yes, I think that's right. And, and certainly as covered entities are evaluating these options, there, there are certainly um, shades of risk associated with them just from a, um, I think, longevity and continued potential benefit from these arrangements. Uh, some of the models involve purchasing 340B drugs through the hospital's existing pharmacy. Some of them involve purchasing through a retail pharmacy that may also operate as an in-house pharmacy of the covered entity, and some involve purchasing through some uh, affiliated pharmacy that would enter into a contract pharmacy arrangement and be licensed as a wholesaler. 
And I think that the way those arrangements are structured, you know, have have different components that need to be evaluated from a state pharmacy law licensure perspective, as well, again, as a, a risk associated with the manufacturers and wholesalers continuing to allow access and, and certainly the safest. And I think the one um, that if it works under state pharmacy laws um, is, is likely to achieve the, I, I would think, best results for the longest period of time would be um, one that involves purchasing the drugs through a hospital pharmacy that is unquestionably a part of the covered entity and therefore accessing those drugs at the 340B pricing would be unquestionably consistent with the 340B statute. You know, one, one topic that's come up when talking about these alternate delivery models in terms of regulatory compliance has been um, DSCSA or Drug Supply Chain Security Act provisions or regulations that might interfere with implementing one of these delivery models. Any, any thoughts around DSCSA and, and how, if at all, that, um, you know, that aspect of uh, regulation kind of interferes? Sure. So I will not purport to be a, a drug supply chain security DSCSA expert. But what I will say is that, you know, the fact that that is part of the discussion highlights the importance of ensuring that the models that are being implemented are checking all of the boxes for relevant um, state and federal law compliance. So not just looking at the 340B program risk, but really ensuring that there is a very clear understanding by the covered entity of all of the federal and state laws that may be implicated by these arrangements and understanding the risks um, and the comfort level uh, with those risks of implementing and going forward with the model. All right, Emily, I've got another question. This wasn't on our list, but this came up in a discussion internally today. So we've got some covered entities that just are not comfortable with, you know, the physical operational changes of uh, buying these drugs through these alternate delivery models, but are interested in maybe reallocating accumulations or virtual inventory from one contract pharmacy universe to another part of their 340B program. Any thoughts on, you know, the, the feasibility of that or the potential regulatory concerns of moving accumulations from one part of your covered entities program to another? Sure. It's been interesting to see these questions arise at the covered entity level because I do think that many covered entities may not have been aware that the reallocation of accumulations has been occurring um, commonly in contract pharmacy arrangements. Um, it is quite common um, among uh, some of the uh, national uh, chain pharmacy, contract pharmacy arrangements for the accumulations at particular locations of their chain pharmacies to be reallocated uh, for purchasing at other locations. So this concept of moving the accumulations between pharmacies, uh, again, has existed for quite some time. And I am not aware, again, from a 340B program perspective of any enforcement actions that have occurred as to those arrangements. So as it relates within the covered entity, Again, so long as the entity that is purchasing the drug is the 340B covered entity and the drug is being dispensed to an individual who is a patient of that covered entity, I am not aware of any provisions within either the 340B statute, certainly, or even within HRSA guidance that require that there be a match between the location at which the drug is dispensed and the location at which it is purchased for replenishment. And again, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, there are many covered entities that have accumulated across dispensing locations um, and really allocating and moving those accumulations for purchasing purposes between pharmacies of, again, the same covered entity is really akin to those pooled accumulation arrangements. So I, I do not see those as a, a, a particularly high risk. Again, certainly you want to ensure you have auditable records so that you can tie every purchase to an eligible dispense. But beyond that, I, I do think that that is something that covered entities, if they're not already doing, should explore, not just for the manufacturer concerns, but really to ensure that their 340B program is, is operating um, at its peak efficiency and that they are getting the full benefit that they are entitled to under the statute. 
I like that answer. Thank you. <laughs> Rob, Good did answer. I miss Good anything answer. else, <laughs> anything else from that discussion we yeah. had internally about the uh, reallocation of accumulations? I know there was some discussion about potential GPO prohibition risk. Do we want to talk about that at all? No, it's just theoretical, um, right? Because I, I, I put on my real conservative hat here, and I just think, okay, if you're a dish hospital, and and I guess it depends how you define a contract pharmacy relationship to work, right? If if um, if the contract pharmacy relationship is really you're emergently borrowing their med on the shelf to administer your patient, and then you're virtually reclassifying that as 340B when the qualification occurs, and then you're basically re returning that drug back to the contract pharmacy, um, there, you know, it's a GPO retail drug may not be a GPO price drug, but it's a retail drug. Th then you resolve any potential G pro GPO prohibition risk. But again, that's theoretical, and that may not exactly be how even HRSA sees a contract pharmacy relationship working. So that was my only concern: is if we don't return the drug to the actual pharmacy, is that a risk? But Emily already pointed out, chains do it all the time. They never, in some cases, they never return that drug to the pharmacy where the dispense occurred. It just gets moved around within Central the chain. Central fill models and all that. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's already occurring, but that was just my theoretical risk. Um, is is that too conservative, Emily? Did I um, am I just overthinking? So I think it is always challenging within the 340B program to not let the exceptions swallow the guidance for routine operations. So I do think that there are certainly circumstances on the margins where we do need to be mindful of the way in which drugs are moving around, uh, when, particularly when they are uh, urgently needed in one location versus another in order to ensure appropriate patient care. And HRSA, I believe, has always been, um, and I would expect them to continue to be understanding of the challenges of providing patient care and compliance with 340B program requirements. And my uh, experience has been that so long as there are auditable records to show what is occurring, why it was occurring, and to, uh, to document those, those instances when they occur, HRSA has, has generally been uh, very uh, you know, accommodating of unusual circumstances and ensuring that their program guidance does not get in the way of providing appropriate patient care. Excellent. All right, you guys okay if we move on to another topic? Yes. Yes. All right, let's talk about patient definition. There's been lots of chatter over the last year or so around uh, how a covered entity may define uh, an eligible patient to receive 340B drug. And a lot of the conversation really was spearheaded by um, the Genesis case. So Emily, share with us your thoughts on how uh, the Genesis case against HHS may shape interpretation of patient definition. Sure. The Genesis case I find I find quite fascinating because it is, I think, the um, the only really public example we have of a 340B covered entity challenging PERSA's interpretation of any component of the 340B program in court. And it is really instructive, I believe, to other covered entities in how to look at the HRSA guidance as it relates to the 340B program and to look at it critically. I think that covered entities, for, for a variety of reasons, um, have generally uh, been inclined to follow the HRSA guidance, even in circumstances where they feel very strongly that it is not consistent with the statute um, or where HRSA has not appropriately applied their own guidance. But Genesis is really the first instance we have where a covered entity has very strongly pushed back on HRSA. And we're seeing the real behind the, behind the scenes, I will call it, um, thought process of HHS and HRSA as it relates to the 340B program somewhat in real time. So it has been fascinating for me as an attorney to follow the Genesis case and the filings in the Genesis case because we have gotten really that glimpse into some of HRSA's thought process. So we had, for example, filings previously in the case as they relate to HRSA's actual audit guidance and the instructions they were given to auditors on how to interpret the patient definition and the ways in which that was different from what the public 
uh, information associated with the definition of patient was. And then just recently in the uh, filing, I believe a couple of weeks ago from the Department of Justice um, in response to Genesis's motion for summary judgment, we saw further um, explanation from the government as to the way in which they view the definition of patient. Um, that was, I, I will just say in my view, not entirely consistent with some of their prior filings in the Genesis case. And it will be really interesting to see how that unfolds. I will say, particularly in light of the manufacturer amicus briefs that were filed last week um, that uh, pushed back on uh, Genesis's uh, interpretation of the definition of patient, perhaps even more strongly than the government had, um, it will be interesting to see how Genesis then responds to some of those, um, those statements. And I think ultimately it will be up to the court uh, to decide what the definition of patient is. And you know, one of the interesting open questions at this point is when the court makes that decision, whether that um, definition of patient that ultimately comes out of the Genesis case is even going to apply to anyone other than Genesis. Yeah. So we did see um, in the most recent government filing that they did request that the court limit their decision in the case to Genesis. Um, and it could be that we are ultimately living in a world where there are two definitions of patient, one that applies to Genesis and one that applies to everyone else. That's an interesting take, because I know one of the things that Rob and I have debated about is whether or not Genesis's argument around patient definition and the fact that there being an, an FQHC, does that argument have any applicability to hospital covered entities who are also questioning patient definition? But what you're suggesting is that there may not be, you know, any general applicability of the court ruling in Genesis's case outside of Genesis themselves, right? Exactly. You know, we're really seeing courts um, move towards issuing decisions that are applicable only to the named litigants in the case. And so I, you know, I think if you had asked me a year ago whether I thought the Genesis case would result in a definition of patient that was only applicable to Genesis, I probably would have laughed and said, no, that's not possible. How could you have two different interpretations of the same statute? But that is exactly what we're seeing in some other cases. And in fact, even in the 340B space, um, that is the current state of affairs as it relates to the administrative dispute resolution rule in Eli Lilly. So currently, um, HRSA is unable to enforce the administrative dispute resolution process solely as it relates to Eli Lilly. But even though the court found that the ADR process uh, did not follow Administrative Procedure Act um, in that Lilly case, they did not completely vacate the entire rule. Um, it is only Lilly that um, is exempt from that process and not any other party. So again, uh, it will be very interesting to see where things come out in the Genesis case. I, I do hope they, they move more quickly than, uh, than we're seeing in some of the other federal litigation but um, you know, it, it is interesting to see the different arguments, uh, the ways in which they are framed. Um, you know, the potential outcomes at this point are quite broad. We have Genesis arguing that um, an individual who received services from the, uh, the health center um, at really any point in time uh, for any particular reason is a patient for purposes of drug dispensing. Um, and then we have the government arguing that the, uh, the service that results in the prescription that is filled must be provided by the covered entity um, and that the uh, relationship for the patient definition needs to be much more closely tied to the service provided by the covered entity than Genesis is arguing. So. We, we've got really the two, uh, I think, ends of the spectrum in terms yeah. of the patient definition being argued. And uh, the court could pick one of those. It could conceivably pick something in between. And we're just going to have to wait and see where they come out. And that all might just apply to Genesis and no one else. Doesn't that expose HRSA maybe to some further litigation? Why wouldn't another covered entity say, well, look, if, if Genesis is able to establish their own patient definition through litigation with the, with the government, why, why shouldn't I pursue that as well? Sure, I think that's a, a great point. And, and I do think that if the, the decision does apply just to Genesis, 
we could certainly see circumstances where any other covered entity that has action taken against them by HRSA in an, in an audit setting uh, would be very well positioned to challenge that uh, finding in court. Well, that's interesting. I was going to say just one question. I what I've always what I haven't been to figure out, and Emily, you kind of alluded to it that uh, you know hopefully it's sooner and later. If you had your crystal ball out, uh, or you could look into your crystal ball, how long do you think um, it'll take for the courts to decide on this? Because it's August. We've been saying that for a year or for a long time now that oh Genesis and the HRSA or HHS lawsuit will play out in the courts in August, or at least that's when it starts. Any ideas when we'll actually probably get a judgment on that? I wish I, I knew. Um, unfortunately, federal appeals courts are not subject to any particular timing rules um, as it comes to their decisions. I will say in the Genesis case, there's still um, briefing being done between the parties. So we certainly would not expect a decision until all of the briefing is done. I believe I saw this morning that uh, Genesis has received an extension on their reply brief to the government's brief from uh, week before last um, until the end of September, I believe. So, you know, we, we certainly are looking at um, the latter portion of, uh, of 2023 and, and conceivably into 2024. Okay, so not anytime soon. No, no. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Greg, you're going to ask well, something else. <laughs> be surprised. And I, I should have said federal district courts, um, not appeals courts, because we are now back okay. in the district court. Um, you know, they did move uh, pretty quickly uh, when it was in the district court previously. So we, you know, again, we may be surprised. We may get something pretty quickly. Um, and and certainly I think that would um, be helpful regardless of the outcome in uh, addressing a lot of uncertainty that folks are facing right now. It, it is so challenging in the 340B program to uh, operate with the level of uncertainty that is required as a baseline given the lack of regulation. And certainly with uh, the ongoing litigation on many fronts, it, it creates that additional level of uncertainty. Um, and for 340B uh, covered entities, unfortunately, there, there's not an option to uh, wait to see how things uh, shake out. Um, it, it is a world in which the uncertainty is something that simply comes with the 340B program and learning to operate within that is, is something that it is important that covered entities are able to navigate. Yeah, you said something earlier that actually made me think that we could write a book on. Um, you said it was a different shade of gray, and I thought we could probably have a book, you know, 340B, 50 Shades of Gray, and it'd probably sell yeah. well. Um, yeah. Lots of gray here. Yes. Um, you know, it, it is fascinating. I, I will say I, I, I did not um, provide my full background on the 340B program at the outset but have been working with the 340B program now, um, you know, in, in various levels of intensity for more than 20 years. And wow. as part of that, when I was with the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy in the early 2000s, prior to the addition of many of the rural providers um, after the Affordable Care Act, um, at that time, I was working with the folks in the Office of Pharmacy Affairs on trying to help them better understand Medicare cost reports and how they operate and what that meant for some of the categories of rural providers that were not able to participate, as well as for some of the various types of provider-based entities. And even at that time, which was a very different time in the 340B program, um, it was very clear how challenging it is um, to run a federal program that does not have rulemaking authority and where the statute is um, at, at best vague. And so because of that, it is, it is you know, so important that covered entities understand where those gray areas are how they intersect with other federal and state programs and really solidify their own individual interpretations of the 340B statute and what the 340B program requirements are so that they're able to operate within a framework that they have vetted that they believe is legally defensible um, and are not constantly struggling with some of these gray areas on a day-to-day, -day, incident by incident basis and have that real baseline, fundamental structure that they are using for their 340B program. 
That's a great segue to my next question. This kind of dovetails off of what we were talking about with patient definition, particularly related to how hospitals define eligible locations within their um, within their organization, 190 clinics or below the line uh, clinics. We've got guidance from 1994 that establishes how hospitals can identify offsite outpatient facilities as, as eligible. They need to be listed as reimbursable cost centers on their Medicare cost report, but there's no discussion around how to treat these clinics that are owned and operated by the hospital, but have expenses hitting on or below 190 clinics. Any any thoughts around how a covered entity should be evaluating 190 clinics in the overall kind of organization of their 340B program or what, what they need to be looking at when they're evaluating whether or not 190 clinics should be operating within the confines of their program. Sure, and, and I think that does dovetail nicely because it gets into the Medicare cost report. And so one of the, the areas of the 340B program where I would argue the HRSA guidance has you know, fallen short of providing the level of information and instruction that covered entities need is what is the covered entity? And fortunately, uh, we don't need to rely solely on HRSA to tell us what is the covered entity because uh, for the hospital covered entities in particular, as well as the grantees, but we'll focus on the hospitals because that's where the line 190 comes into play. Um, for the hospital covered entities, they are each defined by a cross-reference to the Medicaid, Medicare statutory definitions of the particular hospital type that is eligible to participate in the 340B program. So we don't really need to look at HRSA's guidance as to what they believe is the covered entity, which um, I would argue in, at times is not consistent with the statute. Um, the statute itself tells us where to look, and that is to the Medicare program definitions of those hospital entities. And by cross-referencing to the Medicare statute, it allows for us to look to what Medicare defines as that hospital that is eligible to participate in the 340B program. And under the Medicare rules, uh, when we are looking at what is part of a hospital, we are looking at that Medicare certified hospital entity that is enrolled in the Medicare program and for which the Medicare program treats as a hospital for payment purposes. So really when looking at what is the covered entity, we are looking at what are the components of this entity that Medicare pays for as part of this hospital. And I will say with those clinics that are below line 190, Generally, those are uh, locations that are not part of the Medicare certified entity. They are locations that may uh, be within the same building or share certain staff or expenses with the Medicare certified hospital entity, but are actually showing up on the cost report specifically to exclude those costs from the Medicare calculation of the payments due to the hospital. So when we talk about being on the cost report, it is always very important to really take a step back and say, what do we mean when we say on the cost report? Because I think a lot of folks in the 340B space will use on the cost report as shorthand for part of the Medicare hospital entity. But in fact, there are all sorts of things that are quote on the cost report, literally when you pull the cost report and download it and look at the cost report that are on that piece of paper specifically to indicate that they are in fact not part of the actual Medicare hospital entity. I'm digesting this, Rob. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, good information. That, that's always been a tough one, are, are the 190s. And, and it does say it's in the non-reimbursable section, but yeah. then we also get where some covered entities um, look at the statute and talk about you know, what locations are integral to their covered entity, and some do feel those 190 clinics. They, you know, although they bill like a, you know, a POS 11 or a, a standalone physician clinic, they do consider them integral to the hospital, and that's where it gets a little, little muddy um, when you go back to actual statute. So I will say that um, in terms of, you know, the the legal interpretation of what is part of the hospital. 
for Medicare purposes, they do look to what is known as the Medicare provider-based rule, that's 42 CFR 413.65, which sets forth the rules for determining when a particular location or service is considered by Medicare to be part of the hospital. All right, good. Um, kind of continuing on discussion around eligible locations, what about newly opened hospital outpatient departments? You know, back at the um, beginning of May, when the Biden administration uh, retired or expired the public health emergency, HRSA also removed FAQ 4301 that outlined some provisions for immediate use of 340B drugs in newly operated clinics that were not uh, not yet appearing on their most recently filed cost report and not registered on the OPA database. We get a lot of questions from 340B covered entities wondering how they should proceed with managing these new locations uh, while they wait for the, the next cost report to be filed. Any, any thoughts on how covered entities should navigate uh, in the absence of that FAQ 4301? Sure. You know, this one is a real a real head scratcher, I will say. Um, from the perspective of HRSA's interpretation of the statute, um, I think it is very clear at this point that they have taken the position that um, a location of a hospital that has not yet appeared on a filed cost report is not a part of that hospital for purposes of the 340B program. I am uh, surprised that they have um, decided to uh, continue that position. I think that it is uh, unquestionable that the 340B statute uh, refers to the Medicare definitions of those hospital eligible entities. And under the Medicare program, as soon as a location meets those Medicare provider-based rules that I just mentioned and bills as part of the hospital is eligible to receive Medicare payments as hospital services, um, it is part of that hospital. And uh, I, I, again, uh, do, not, uh, do not have a sense of HRSA's reasoning for taking the position that those locations are not part of the covered entity. But from a statutory perspective, those locations are unquestionably part of the uh, covered entity that is eligible by statute. And so long as the drugs that are um, being uh, dispensed in those locations or the prescriptions being written from those locations are uh, being dispensed or written for individuals that are patients of the covered entity, then the statute says that those they are eligible to receive 340B drugs. So, um, you know, it, it, is, it is a bit of a, a conundrum why HRSA is uh, continuing to uh, take the position that their registration rules uh, supersede Medicare uh, statutory definitions, but that, that is the position that they are taking. And if, Emily, I, I love how you kind of use the 190 clinics um, discussion and it's kind of in the same way in that, that CMS has already determined what's hospital-based or provider-based. And, and where you know one position might make sense where the other one doesn't. I, I love that um, counterposition there between those two questions. The, the word on the street is um, that we, there has been um, some covered entities that have gone through HRSA audits post May 11th that um, have used this um, you know, immediate uh, 340B eligibility prior to being on a file cost report. And so I think we're waiting to see at least on one or two of those hospitals what HRSA does. Um, Based on that, that and the fact that HRSA did pull back some initial things that they had Apexis telling people when they caught in on this or covered entities when they caught in. So now they're, from my perspective, at least neutral or at least silent on the subject. They've just removed things from their website or FAQs, but they really haven't said anything specific. I mean, there's another FAQ that predates the removal of FAQ 4301. But uh, thoughts on what you think they'll actually do for a HRSA audit if a, if a covered entity or hospital is using this immediate qualification um, during a HRSA audit, kind of what you think the result would be? That's a great question. So just a couple of points. So if you do go at least, well, I haven't gone there today, but um, I did go there fairly recently. If you go to the Apexis website, uh, there are FAQs there that do indicate that you cannot use 340B drugs until a location appears on a filed cost report and if necessary is registered. So that, that is very clearly the current 
position of HRSA and consistent with those FAQs, I would anticipate that on audit, um, they would find that use of drugs at those, uh, again, unquestionably part of the covered entity, but um, not yet appearing on a filed cost report or registered locations are not eligible to um, obtain 340B drugs. I will say that, um, you know, certainly for covered entities that believe HRSA's interpretation is um, inconsistent with the statute and unenforceable, that it would be prudent to confer with legal counsel um, to discuss how to proceed and whether there are arguments to disregard that HRSA interpretation and to proceed notwithstanding um, HRSA's current position and, and use 340B drugs at, at those locations. Yeah, we feel the same way. We agree. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening this week. We've had such a great discussion with Emily Cook. We're going to actually break this conversation up into two parts. Um, she's going to be back with us on our next episode. We're going to talk about things like CMS, OPPS, uh, Payment Remedy, Inflation Reduction Act, and the 340B program, some other developments in the 340B space, particularly around Section 1115 demonstrations and how that might interfere with 340B dish calculations. So uh, come back again and listen to part two of our conversation with Emily Cook. Rob, you're not a big fan of these part one, part two splits, are you? No, I feel like you just get left hanging. And um, I, I will say I'm a little sensitive to the part one, part two thing, because I feel like there's been so many movies that have come out recently that are doing the part one, part two. I just saw um, what it's Mission Impossible. I had no idea it was going to be a part one, part two. I was kind of bugged by that. And then what was the other one? Oh, Spider-Verse was a part one, part yeah. two. Spider-Verse shouldn't be a part one, part two. Um, I was mad about that one. I had no idea that one was going to be split. So right, I just can appreciate. <laughs> well, we're telling people now ahead of time. So people should be, uh, you know, they should be aware that you got to tune in twice if you want to hear the full conversation. So you at least we're not. You did We well, did. There's no, there's no cliffhanger here. So wait, well, there's another. But, oh, Fast and the Furious. That's when you kind of got to finish in one go. You can't do a part one, part two, Fast and the Furious. It's or, you already know what you get with a Fast and the Furious. I don't want to have to wait for the ending. All right, I'll get. I, I can't even. I can't even believe they can split a fast. There's a cutting point in a Fast and the Furious movie where the action stops. I feel like those things are just action packed from start to finish. Where do you actually stop part one to start part two? It doesn't make sense to me. Well, you know, the Rock's coming back, and they took a couple of people that weren't in that part. They just kind of showed the Rock and a couple other people. So I, it'll be interesting to see that one. But yeah, there's been a lot of that lately. So I just want to apologize from 340 Been Scripted for doing a part one, part two series in the midst of all the movie part one, part twos, but. There it is. We, we try to keep our episodes to about an hour. So when we have such a really great conversation or discussion with somebody like Emily, uh, it's just natural for us to talk longer than an hour. And we don't want folks to have to listen to super long episodes. So uh, this will just give you, you know, another chance to, to come back and, and hear more 340B banter. There you go. There you go. We appreciate it, everybody. Thank you. Thanks again. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.